I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Outer Sanctum is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people remain strong in their enduring connections to land, water and culture. We pay our respect to Elders past and present. Hello to you and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. My name is Tess Armstrong and I'm here to keep you company and try to both distract and dissect a very intense week in the world. Straight up, before we get going, let's be frank, it's been a week. There's a war, there are floods, there's an ongoing pandemic and I want to recognise how tough it can be just to get up and get going, let alone to turn all of that off and chat about the footy like nothing's happening while it's actually all happening. A bit later on, we're going to discuss the tendency for Australian rules football to appropriate the imagery and the language of war, but there's no argument that sport and footy can play powerful roles in both diplomacy, as we've seen this week, but also purely distraction. While I was doing a bit of reading, I read the description of a game played between Aussie soldiers in the First World War. A Lieutenant Lionel Short wrote about one of those games and said that that night saw officers and sergeants again on the front line on a tour of inspection, previous to another term of duty in the trenches. But it is certain that the game had given them fresh heart. It carried them back to those happy days when football was played in certain Melbourne suburbs they called home. And it is in such happy thoughts and memories that we soldiers live. I found this week that getting a cuppa, sitting in the comfy spot on the couch with the dog taking up an outrageous amount of space, admiring the stunning Indigenous jumpers and watching athletes that I'm in awe of play my favourite game in the world has been a beautiful respite and I hope it has been for you too. Another beautiful respite is the company of some of my favourite humans in the world here to tackle all these sorts of big things with me and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Rana Hussain. Hello, I'm Kate Sia. Hello to you both. How are you? Oh. Oh, that was a big sigh from me, which should tell you everything. It's been a bonkers week, that's for sure. Yeah, it's pretty grim, I must say, although I am also conscious of the fact that the sort of stuff that we've all been shocked by this week is also stuff that's been going on in other parts of the world for a long time and we're just not always paying as much attention to it. I'm conscious of that, but, yeah, it's, it's it's been a hard week. But in terms of footy, there's been a lot of great footy played. So, um, yeah, let's talk about them both. Hasn't that? And before we get into any actual footy, we just simply must discuss the most important story of the week, and that was Gillan McLaughlin's <laughs> press conference. Uh, I don't yeah. know who has seen it out there, and if you haven't, the AFL CEO was announcing an upgrade to Marvel Stadium, and it's part of a 200 200- these are like Austin Powers, Dr. Evil numbers, by the way, $225 million redevelopment of Marvel Stadium, which I didn't really, I must have just, that must have just passed me by because that's an amount of money that seems quite significant for several reasons. But Gillen was talking about 
in particular two new scoreboards that are going to be hung from either end of the ground. And he described these, you know, giant visual steel beasts as the sexiest things one could possibly imagine. The sexiest thing we could possibly imagine in footy. I don't know. I don't know if that was it. And I and it got me thinking about the sexiest things at the footy for me. And so uh, this is a little tribute to those really sexy things. <laughs> when you get a pie and they don't charge you for sauce. When you arrive at your allocated seat and you don't have to ask someone to move. When Angry Anderson sings Bound for Glory in a Batmobile. When Kevin Sheedy's scarf is swung oh so right. When internet trolls get their memberships cancelled. You know what I find sexy? A more diverse sports media landscape. The old umpire uniforms, you know, the ones that look like a lab coat and wide-brimmed hat. You know what else I find sexy? An AFLW app that's up to date. (laughs) Peggy O'Neill. Footy cultures that aren't sexist and racist and homophobic. Feeling safe going home after the footy. Mm. So sexy. Mm. The use of AFLM. (laughs) Do you know what I find sexy? When you go to the number two toilet, but the toilet paper is three ply. (laughs) When you readjust your scarf and your team scores a goal. (laughs) When Gillan McLaughlin finally announced the end of AFLX. When the commentary panel has no men on it who've been convicted of violence against women. And you know what else I find sexy? When women get equal pay. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Um, Wow, that hot under the collar in here. And although those things are very sexy, there's nothing more sexy than some good old-fashioned footy highlights. Rana, over the weekend of AFLW, what took your fancy? Oh, there was so much to take my fancy. But I have to say, for me, it was the game of one Sabrina Frederick. Now, I thought that maybe I was a little bit biased that she was my highlight because she is a friend of mine. I worked with her at Richmond. I do love her and I'm such a fangirl. (laughs) I thought maybe I've just only got eyes for Sab. So I did actually call friend of the pod, Gemma Bastiani, to double check whether, (laughs) in fact, this was a highlight of the round. She has confirmed that, yes, this is probably one of Sabrina's best games in the season, in fact if not the best. Um, And also in her career, she had three marks inside 50. Um, Her one percenters were amazing. There was this amazing tap into Jamie Lambert. Uh, And this is the third time in her career she's kicked multiple goals in a game. Mm. Um, And the last time was in 2018. So I don't know what was going on there for (laughs) her at the Tigs. But she kicked two goals and three behinds. She looked so confident to me. And it turns out, I watched the press conference after the game and they're playing her in a different position now. So this position closer to the goals, um, just outside the goal square is much more comfortable for her. And Collingwood's ball movement was also a lot more fluent and she got just got more of the ball so she just managed to actually have a full game and do what she does and it was just so nice to see her firing on all cylinders 
what a legend, friend of the pod. I'm, I'm cla- <laughs> we claim her all the time. And I on know. the weekend, it was just wonderful, wonderful to see her enjoying her footy. And the Pies looked great. There's still a couple of games left in this season. They're a sneaky chance for the finals, despite the criticism early in the year. So good on them. Kate, what took your eye? Actually, I'm not going to say that because that's a commentary watch because I don't want anything to take your eye. Okay. <laughs> what was of interest to you in the round? Yes. Thank you very much, Tess, for that. Uh, well, everyone's had a win and Lucy Race mm. said that uh, she'd be she'd be a bit annoyed with us if we didn't sort of um, acknowledge that everyone's a winner, baby. That's the truth. So that's um, that's for you, Lou. But my highlight is St Kilda, who finally broke through for their first win of the season. And, in fact, if you didn't hear this stat, it's staggering. It's actually their first win in 336 days. So that's a very long time between metaphoric drinks. They prevailed over the Gold Coast by three points. The Saints were two goals up with just a few minutes to go and Tara Bohanna for the Gold Coast then scored, making for a really tense last couple of Mm. minutes, not just because the Saints hadn't won and it felt like uh, the Gold Coast might come over the top of them, but because Saints fans had had their hearts broken just four days earlier, (laughs) if you remember when the Giants kicked that goal after the siren to to pinch the win and and it felt like a lifetime ago between those two games because there's been so much going on in the world. World, but uh, I was just so thrilled for them. Uh, there were great performances by Tilly Lucasrod in particular. She had 21 disposals and Bianca Jacobson had 18. But a standout for me was Nat Exxon, who <laughs> hasn't always made it onto the pitch uh, this year and was really influential uh, with 14 disposals, one goal and eight tackles. And I think the Saints look really good and really tough when Nat Exxon's out on the field. And, you know, you could tell what it meant to the team when you saw the scenes after the siren. Mm. They were so thrilled and um, gee, you'd have a hard heart if you weren't happy for St Kilda finally getting a win. It was beautiful. It was stunning. And like that just shows you the joy of footy, right? That it can be 330, how many? 336 days. 336 days, days, yeah. Wild. But then that celebration is so worth it. One win in 336 days, that is worth it. It's worth everything. And Saints fans, honestly, get around them uh, because they're on on the up. And Saints fans, they should take what they get in terms of joy. You've got to accept (laughs) every little slim pick. I'm from a St Kilda household. Like I know they take every bit and then they cling on for the next next 10 years my highlights there were so many there was so much to talk about on the footy on the weekend but on Sunday Gemma Bastiani friend of the pod and if you ha- if you don't follow her on Twitter get on it because she's the person now she was telling us that every single game on Sunday there was a record broken now I'm going to go with two of those games the Carlton GWS game had the wonderful Darcy Vessio become the first AFLW player to reach 50 goals Darcy iconic player lovable legend and proper game changer in mm. all in all capacity. So congratulations to them and the team celebrations afterwards also, (laughs) just pure glee, love it. And the Lions, speaking of goals, defeated Eagles by a whopping 74 points. They finished on 15-8-98, two points away from triple figures. Annoying. But anyway, regardless, the highest ever score in an AFLW match, nine individual goal scorers, Sophie Conway, Jesse Wardlaw, three goals each. Absolutely ridiculous. They take on North this week. Should be a blinder, if you know, you know. Blinder, the word makes me cry now. But anyway, um, I can't wait for that. And just the Lions, just out of this world, Rana. Don't you feel like uh, the Blues FLW side, like you get so much FOMO with that side. (laughs) 
that the way they were ca- and it's not even carry on like it was deserved yeah. you know celebration for Darcy but never do I feel like I want to be a part of a team regardless of results mm. I just want to be part of their squad in every <laughs> sense of the word we need that in our normal life for example I'm trying to cook a birthday cake you guys were talking about the women's weekly birthday Mm. cakes for a while and I'm trying to cook the first birthday cake and so the first one was a disaster and then the second one I really nailed the draft I felt like there should have been 15 people in the kitchen being like yeah getting stuck in to really ramp me up because that's how I felt I felt like I was a record breaker in that moment and I didn't have the hire a footy team around um, my kitchen to really celebrate with me so yeah I get fine my day we can talk though because we are three in a squad of 10 so (laughs) it's true and if I had to send to the group chat maybe I would have got something. It would have gotten a lot of moral support and a lot of gifts from me, a lot of applause gifts. Plinking guy gift (laughs) would have been really offensive. Anyway, it's about time to roll up our sleeves and melee. So it has been a world-changing week since Thursday when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. And while I think the three of us could probably veer off and talk about many, many parts of this story, our MO is obviously sport. So we want to talk about what role sport plays in these big international moments. There's the base level I mentioned earlier, which is that sport serves as an outlet for, you know, for us to turn to a happy place, a distraction, and then off switch from the real world. But then there's this big diplomatic aspect of world sport and it's enormous megaphone before i get to you kate and rana i might just whip through some examples of how different sports have reacted this week the list is huge and it's also changing as different sports i'm sure are having meetings about what they do and what they say and all of those things but in the tennis world daria seville who used to be gavrilova who played for russia before she became a player for australia she tweeted that russia should stop the war and she's planning to wear ukrainian colors in her current tournament Russia's world number seven, Andrei Rublev, scrawled no war, please, across the camera um, after his semi-final victory in Dubai. On the men's tour, we have a new world number one, and that's Daniel Medvedev, who's Russian. He said he's all for peace and that in this moment you understand that tennis sometimes is not that important. In judo, Putin was the honorary president of the International Judo Federation and they've suspended that role, which, you know, is quite meaningful because Putin has put out many books about judo and his relationship to that sport. In ice hockey, one of the American players who plays in the NHL for Washington uh, is a Russian person called Alex Ovechkin and he spoke out against the invasion and he's a previous Putin supporter, so that seems significant. Formula One has been cancelled, the Russian Grand Prix. Swimming Australia is working out what they do. They're looking to boycott the two world championship events that will be in Russia later this year. Rugby Europe has cancelled a 2023 World Cup qualifier between Georgia and Russia. And the two big interesting ones that are, are changing almost by the day, the International Olympic Committee has recommended that sports should ban athletes or teams that are from Russia or Belarus from international competition. So it's significant because the IOC has always claimed that it remains politically neutral on global affairs. However, the decision actually ends up still being in the arms of the events organisers, whether or not they make the final call. So it's not a hugely significant moment for the IOC to then let other people make the decision anyway. But they've also alluded that the Winter Paralympics, which start this week, it's probably going to be too short notice for that event to do anything. So I'd be interested to find out from you two what that statement is really. And another interesting organisation was the 
seriously roller coaster of reluctance from FIFA um, in the football world as well. The, the countries such as Sweden, Poland, and the UK said they wouldn't play against Russia in any form, anywhere, neutrals, regardless. At the early stages, it seemed as though those countries were willing to forfeit because in a World Cup qualifier, if you don't play, then you're out of the World Cup. And FIFA was forced in the end to expel Russia from the upcoming World Cup and all international competitions until further notice, as well as the European football's governing body, ending a $62 million partnership with an energy giant from Russia. So that is quite a significant moment. Kate, did I've, I know you've got a lot to say about several parts of this, but did anything in particular stand out for you? Yeah, well, it's been fascinating, as you say, Tess, to see how they all respond. But there was one game in the UK, a a football match between Manchester City and Everton that caught my eye. And this was a game where players from both teams came out onto the pitch up through the race, showing visible signs of support for Ukraine. You might have seen it on Twitter because uh, there were Ukrainian players from both teams one from each team who went and hugged each other. It was quite quite an emotional moment. But there was something that the commentator said as the players came out onto the ground that caught my attention. Normally, of course, it would have been part you had heard an air raid siren which signals the teams were about to emerge. You didn't hear that this evening because in light of Russia's invasion, they decided it was not the appropriate time. And this wasn't the first reminder for me this weekend of how the imagery of war or metaphors or language or symbols from war make their way into sport. And I want to talk about my own club, Hawthorne, who, of course, I love, but have always had, I think, a a relationship to, to war and war imagery that's troubled me a bit. So just a few days ago, as I said to you both at the time, I was troubled by the fact that I saw Hawthorne tweet that we had some new players joining the, the women's team, uh, joining what was called the Brown and Gold Army. And that's a phrase that our club's used for a really long time to describe its fan base. But really, for as long as I can remember, the former coach of the Hawthorne men's team, Alistair Clarkson, really explicitly engaged with war imagery and language. So from almost the start of Clarko's tenure as coach, the players, and club officials together would make an annual pilgrimage to Kokoda and together they would walk the Kokoda Trail. And they then adopted the four words from the plaque at the Kokoda Trail, which were at the time courage, mateship, endurance and sacrifice as a kind of, I guess, an unofficial team motto. And I remember that those words eventually made their way onto a banner that the team ran through. I think it was in the 2008 grand final. So there was this really explicit embrace of of Kokoda at our club but we use this language in other ways for years at the club too so when players went out with injury Clarko frequently said words to the effect of you know it's okay we're not too troubled by it we lose one soldier we replace him with another soldier and of course our captain uh, across all of those years Luke Hodge became known as the general that was his nickname Mm. so There's a lot of research that shows how certain terms of war have become really commonplace in sport. So words like battle and battlefield and attack and defence and warriors (laughs) are always used in sport. And we hear it in the way that commentators talk us through the game. Sometimes they'll say that games could be a war of attrition or a battle and it's not unheard of to hear commentators say things like, you know, the two teams are going to war with each other. Now, in an article on why we need to stop using war metaphors like these in sport, the writer Rob Huckins said, the use of war lingo in areas not involving war is inappropriate at a bare minimum and at its worst, diminishing to actual combat veterans. But I'd go a step further than Huckins and say that there's something that's really troubling 
for me about the co-mingling of war and sport. It's not just, I think, inappropriate and distasteful and potentially diminishing to people who've actually served in war. I think it's actually dangerous because I think when the language of war comes into sport and it goes beyond simply acknowledging the efforts of people who went to war or respectfully acknowledging those who were injured or died, it often actively glorifies war or valorizes war and worst of all it normalizes war and that's what troubles me and so Everton is the club that uses typically that air raid siren that decided not to use it the other day when they played but of course there's a precedent for that here in the AFL because Essendon uses the air raid siren in its games and I've always cringed at it a bit because I do cringe at some of these war metaphors and imagery and this week I think it's I found it especially jarring to imagine being at games in the next few weeks and to hear that air raid siren because like you I I guess and everybody who listens to our pod this week I've been seeing footage of people who are in a war zone surrounded by actual air raid sirens footage on the ABC news in the last couple of days of children dying like absolutely devastating stuff but also on social media I have seen survivors of the Balkans war or Palestinians tweeting about how triggering it is for them to see those air raid sirens and it got me thinking how can any club justifiably sustain something like that when it's such a vivid and painful reminder to so many people of violence and death and atrocities and even genocide um, and war crimes and I think the reason that Essendon would say they do it is that it's historic right they they came to be known as the bombers but only during World War II it's not that's not always been their name And that was due to their proximity to the airport. And, of course, they now have really embraced this identity. They call their headquarters the hangar. They have a bomber as their logo. And, you know, it might have been a tribute to World War II veterans at first and perhaps there's still something in that that is valuable and important to recognise people who've been to war, including people who went against their will. But for me, I think there's something grossly insensitive about war iconography in a footy club and personally I've come to think that Essendon should consider actually changing their name and changing their logo as a mark of progress and respect and as it turns out there's actually somebody else who has called for this in the past I was looking into it the other day and and so I'll just leave you with this that back in 2016 there was a piece written on Essendon's name and its logo and it was funnily enough written by a sports journalist from the UK called Tony Mahoney and he obviously had a kind of fresh perspective on this coming from the outside and seeing that we had this team here in our competition with this name and with this iconography and he was actually stunned that people weren't confronted by it in the way that he was and what brought it to his attention was that there had been an article in the Daily Telegraph about the Essendon doping scandal and believe it or not the headline of that article was suicide bombers and he couldn't believe that they had gotten away with that and that there was not uproar in Australia about how sort of offensive and demeaning it is to hear that language used so casually to describe a footy story and ultimately I just want to leave you with one quote from his piece that has rung in my mind over the last few days he said bombs and bombers are now more than ever synonymous with what they truly are a mechanism for death and destruction man's most efficient method of killing man on a mass scale. Australia has a very particular relationship with our war, with our First World and Second World War history, and it happened at such a defining moment for the colonised version of Australia. And, and sporting clubs, you know, 
searching for those words to me is just like privilege of peace, mm. right? They, they, they're not serving mm. their playing sport. So how can we use these people that are serving that are so brave and so incredible? How can we use them to inspire us in our lives? And that can just get away from people, I think, in terms of how far they go and those headlines where it's clearly just gets away because we don't have to think about those things as much here because it hasn't happened on our shores. And that is quite complicated too because we live in such a diverse society there are so many members of our community that have come from war and that this is a very real part of their existence and so that just seems it seems incredibly short-sighted for us not to understand that on the other hand I don't know how I feel about the Bombers changing their name and that is partly because I am such a footy nerd and historian that I don't even really think about that when I hear the Essendon Bombers I don't think about that when I see their logo I just think about the footy club and I know that sounds really daft but I just don't that that's the Essendon Bombers is just what they're called and have been for my life and so and partly uh, as you mentioned if they are named that because it's a it's a tribute to our aviation history and the people that did serve us and continue to serve us. Um, that is something that does have merit. But it's an interesting time to bring this up because Essendon are celebrating their 150th anniversary this year and they're going through changes. Their men's team, we're talking about they're going through on-off-field changes. Their identity is changing. They're about to get a women's team and join our competition. So the club might be keen to have a chat about whether or not it's the name they want to keep. They were once called the same olds. They were also called the sash wearers, which I still think holds up so they could probably still go to. And of course they were, they were mm. called the Dons and they're still kind of called the Dons. Um, another club in his in footy history that did change something fundamental was St Kilda. They changed their colours during um, the First World War because the German flag at that time was red, black and white. And so St Kilda had some players who were serving in Belgium and decided to make their colours the Belgium flag. And so they were red, black and yellow for a period of time there. And Western Bulldogs became were Footscray. They changed that name for particular reasons. North Melbourne changed their name from Kangaroos to North Melbourne and back again and so there is footy precedent for people to change their name and I wonder how much how Essendon fans would feel about that I'd love to hear from them definitely and even globally you know uh the NFL team the Redskins became the Washington Commanders although Commanders seems odd to me as well <laughs> still along mm-hmm. the lines of that whole wall uh lexicon I'm really interested in in how people feel about changing the name the Bombers too, but also because I don't really know how they talk about it. Like I know in footy clubs they do talk about their mascot or that emblem so much and they do tie it into kind of the we are a team, rah, 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 and they talk about it so much. I want to know what the Bombers do do when they talk about themselves as the Bombers and if that even features because I feel like that would then be a much bigger conversation whereas if it's something that's kind of in the background for them, it could be an easy change. They probably do talk about that each year at the Anzac Day game because, of course, that is a huge part of Essendon's um, off-field and I think it actually do a really good job of the Anzac Day game and from what I've seen listening to veterans talking to the players but I feel like that would play that must play a, ma- a major role in those conversations or if it doesn't that would be Mm. odd it seems to me that it is part of Essendon's identity because it's been specifically leveraged in relation to the Anzac Day game but I just want to come back to something you said Tess I mean I was 
you both know this, I've been thinking for days about whether whether I think Essendon should change their name or not, what the arguments for and against would be. And I think the two main arguments against Essendon either changing their name or their logo or both would be first, as you said, Tess, that people see it as a tribute to Australians who had fought in World War One or World War Two, or indeed other wars as well. And second, that just that, that argument that gets trotted out all the time when we talk about kind of difficult historical and cultural issues where people say, well, we can't respond to every sensitivity mm. that people have. We can't erase our history. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I guess for me where I sit with this is that we can't pick and choose, we can't predict and we can't pick and choose what that iconography means to people. We can't say, well, we say that it means that we're acknowledging people who fought for Australia in the war. That's what it means. That's the single meaning and everybody else has to get on board with that because as I was saying earlier, as we're all, you know, as we all know that people from many parts in the of the world for who these symbols and images and sounds are genuinely distressing and in fact sometimes mm. actually re-traumatizing. But the other thing I have to say is that one of the the times in my life I've been most affected was when my partner and I travelled to Dresden in Germany a decade or so ago. And for those who don't know, Dresden is a beautiful city in Germany that was historically quite Baroque. It had beautiful buildings and churches and and in 1945, the Allies bombed it and it resulted in a firestorm where probably around 25,000 people were literally incinerated and the city, all of its beautiful buildings and history was destroyed. And there's a lot of debate, I have to say, about Dresden, about whether that was a proportionate response at the time, whether it was, in fact, might be even considered a war crime by standards of international law. And I I recognise that there's a lot of debate about that. Um, but we have to acknowledge that these are the kinds of things that allies did too, in the same, in the same way that the, the Germans undertook the Blitzkrieg and bombed London and, you know, something like 40 thousand civilians were killed you know years ago I read a book by Kurt Vonnegut Jr it's maybe my favorite book Slaughterhouse Five it's a really unique book because it takes in lots of different genres but it's about his experiences as a prisoner of war he was actually a prisoner of war in Dresden and and survived of course because he was in a bunker and came out and was tasked with helping bury the dead and and was clearly deeply traumatized by it it's such an upsetting book and and you know, for me, I think well, it's it's history's not black and white. There's some complexity. There's some complexity, and I it's a subject that's so far beyond what we could do justice to in this podcast. I know it's extremely delicate, mm. but we you know we have to acknowledge that those are the sorts of things that happened too. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You're right, we can hardly do justice to it in a pod, but it is important to discuss and it is important to think from an AFL perspective, an Aussie rules perspective, what we can say. I listed all the sports internationally, right, that are trying to make a stand of some description and it's hard to think about where Aussie rules could actually 
do that outside fundraising and particularly at the moment we've got a national crisis with a flood in Queensland and and New South Wales and I don't know the AFL spoke about that this week but you know the Essendon conversation maybe is something we can actually tackle from a a local perspective and get ourselves at least thinking about what role sport plays Rana. That is a really good point Tess because I remember uh, the first time that the idea of what a bomber is in terms of like the footy club being called the bombers kind of hit me was during 9-11 and also when it was just a running joke when Bashaf was first drafted that the first Muslim to be drafted got drafted to the bombers which as Muslims was like we would laugh at but also it's quite sad that that was the joke that was being made so you know, that was when the first time when I went, oh, hang on a minute, why are we still calling them the Bombers? And similarly, I know when um, the AFL re- were researching their kind of push into India, they were looking at the two clubs at the time who were the most sort of prevalent and interested in doing it, which was the Bombers and Richmond. And the research showed that uh, Indian communities were really averse to the idea of bombers and while the bombers had done so much work around the Indian community in Melbourne in particular Richmond was a better place because of the tiger and what that represented to an Indian community versus bombers so it's really like we think oh it's such wow. a side niche thing but it has come up even in the work um, that the AFL has had to do so I do wonder what what role the AFL can play and I will say I would be thinking about the communities that are affected here. So whenever there are global wars, wars because we are a diverse community, there are always people um, who are feeling it from far away. And, and so I'd be reaching out to those communities if, in fact, AFL and AFL clubs feel like they are for communities. I do think about Belarusian players in the league and there are a couple. So I would just be tapping them on the shoulder and just checking in. The thing that I keep thinking about is how intertwined sport is with geopolitics. And it blows my mind because it comes up all the time. Uh, We see it everywhere. When something big happens globally, sport either gets involved or is a part of it. And this Ukraine-Russia situation is no different. Tess, you listed all the ways in which sport has to now scramble. One thing I have heard recently is that people are calling 2022 the biggest year of sports washing. Now, Sports washing, if you don't know what it is, uh, was popularized, the term popularized by Amnesty International in 2018. And basically it's when an individual or a group or corporation, but usually people are uh, reference it in terms of a nation state, when they use sport to improve their tarnished reputation through hosting a sporting event or the purchase or sponsorship of a sporting team or by participating in the sport itself. So basically aligning with sport so that you look better. And we see this all the time from governments, even our own governments do this all the time. I've heard MRA say this, you know, it's not by coincidence that Scott Morrison turns up at the rugby or, you know, we have prime ministers, a prime minister's 11, you know, those aren't just random things. Not every prime minister is super into sport. They want to be adjacent because they know what sport can do. And we talk about this all the time. Sport brings people together it's a way of creating environments of belonging and inclusion and that's certainly something that drives me but it wasn't kind of until this year when we started to look at all the sports that have had to consider their involvement with Russia that I realized that the thing that I love the most about sport which is that it can 
normalize in inverted commas, break down barriers can actually also be weaponized. And that to me is so scary. One instance of this At the Winter Olympics this year, China platformed a Uyghur athlete to light the torch. And there was a lot of conversation about Uyghur athletes participating for China and about how that is potentially sports washing and in my eyes probably is sports washing given China's record with uh, their Uyghur population and the treatment. And if you don't know about it, I won't go into it, but it's worth looking into because it's one of the biggest human rights violations going around at the moment. And, you know, we're seeing it elsewhere that Qatar will be hosting the World Cup. Plenty of human rights violations to be discussed there. You know, obviously we've got the Russian athletes at the Olympics as well. You know, what does it mean for us as fans that that sport is used in this way. Very good points, Rana, because I also think we should look at ourselves because this week, for example, as journalists, as sports people, we've been looking to athletes, right, and Ukrainian athletes, Russian athletes, what are they saying, how are they standing up? I mean, people were asking Medvedev, you know, what do you have to say for yourself, you know, essentially as as Russia, what do you have to say for yourself? And if you've been paying attention, it's very difficult and very dangerous for people to speak out against Russia and particularly against Vladimir Putin. These athletes are actually being incredibly brave putting themselves out there to say anything at all, particularly athletes with family living in Russia. And the kind of pressure we're putting on those people, those individuals, to say something when you look at those big sporting organisations and how they might essentially hide behind those athletes and those individuals while they kind of make a decision. It's very important that people, if they feel like they're in a, they're in a position to do so, speak out. But you also mentioned there's something interesting, which is that Russia, the Russia situation is so egregious, right? It's so it's so extreme that it has forced the hands of sporting organisations and they've had to say something, particularly as other sporting organisations and, and, and countries do say something. Organisations are being dragged along. But you just spoke about Qatar and China. There were a lot of protests. There was a lot of chat about why are we holding the Olympics there and why are we having the World Cup there? And those abuses are not seen as egregious enough for sporting organisations to have to act. And so it is just, it's been absolutely fascinating for a moment to come in history where it is so extreme that they've had to say something they've had to take a stand and change what is generally a neutral status and we're living through history and that is fascinating and um and messy it's a conundrum because I think we do things in the name of inclusion in sport a lot of the time but I do ask myself is it inclusion or is it propaganda you know in what way is this being used and I think in so many of these examples you could argue that it, these are proper. This is providing propaganda value for these nation states that are doing some really harmful and damaging things. The most, uh, you know, prominent example of sports washing that's used is Nazi Germany in 1936 participating in the Olympic Games in Berlin. And you know, the other thing that I that boggles my mind since I've started working in sport is how much sport is used by governments for soft diplomacy. And it's actually, it's a thing. Like, you know, we have government relations teams in our national sporting organisations whose role it is to maintain relationships with governments, not just to put games on and tournaments on, but to actually manage these relationships. And so while, yes, suddenly this week it's felt like a war's erupted, there was a steady march 
towards this moment and sport has played a big role in that. Yeah. Listening to you, Rana, I keep thinking that there feels like there's a very fine line between some of these things, right? Between, uh, you know, you mentioned Nazi Germany in the 1936 Olympics and recently I watched a film about Jesse Owens and was reminded of uh, the work of Lenny Reifenstahl, who's the filmmaker who photographed or filmed the Olympics and produced the film about it that many people would say was Nazi propaganda and and she would say that was just a celebration of the human spirit and the human form. And you mentioned earlier China's decision to platform a weaker athlete to light, light the torch at the Olympics. Again, a fine line between what might appear to be an act of inclusion and diversity and a recognition of the weaker people and potentially propaganda and I think we don't have we don't have to resolve these questions of what the you know what was the intent where were they coming from what were they trying to do at the end of the day for me the question is simply what did the thing do what did it do what were, you know what did it have the effect of doing quite mm. separate from what the intention might have been and it can be both things at once and as you said earlier you use that phrase propaganda value which I really like because you know often in sporting context, something has propaganda value or it has the value of constituting China or repositioning China as somehow an inclusive nation when in fact we know that they're, they're not and that they're perpetrating human rights abuses all of the time. The other thing that I think is also important though is that I feel like in sport we're so conditioned, we're so socialised to celebrate the kind of individual or heroic effort, you know, moments of bravery, moments of um, sort of soaring above and going beyond and going outside to, you know, take the great mark or kick the incredible goal or do the thing that nobody else does in the moment where the game's on on the line. And, you know, I reflect on all of these athletes these this week who, as you say, Tess, have done really brave and courageous things, who've spoken up as individuals, people like Medvedev and others who live in Russia or who have family in Russia and have put a lot on the line. And I, my first reaction to all of those people is kind of through a sports lens where I think that's brave, that's heroic, that's the kind of, that's the thing I, I want to celebrate. But in so doing that and in having that reaction, what I'm doing is also really celebrating a quite individualistic response. And while I recognise and acknowledge that all of those people who've spoken up are incredibly courageous and can have an impact, the valorization and celebration of the individual response should not come at the expense of the structural response because the responsibility for fixing these problems lies at a much bigger level, at a structural level, at a geopolitical level, at the level of government and also really powerful organisations like FIFA and the IOC who have a lot more responsibility for for fixing these issues and for getting us to where we got than Daniel Medvedev who just plays tennis. And I think that's the really important thing for, for, for me anyway to try and remember and hold on to. I'm Katie Brennan and you're listening to the Legends from the Outer Sanctum. Rana, I saw you had an excellent thread on Twitter this week. There was an image around the world of these nuns playing football and it was amazing and it was heartwarming and all of those things. And then as you are wont to do, you expanded <laughs> your thoughts and made me really think twice about what I was seeing and my gut reaction. Can you take us into your mind and where that where what the story was yes I know I felt really nervous tweeting that because I knew people would be like oh just bloody hell just let us enjoy the nuns running around and enjoying themselves and let me be clear I had the same reaction (laughs) 
I loved watching that and it was just gave me the biggest smile. If you missed it, uh, ABC Sport did tweet um, a video. It kind of looked a little bit voyeuristic, which afterwards I found weird as well. But... I was like spying on the nuns <laughs> playing football. Like, did they anyway. get permission to post that? Anyway, it's a group of nuns on a rooftop somewhere in the world kicking the soccer ball around, having an amazing time. Every, you know, people started tweeting it and, of course, there were lots of, you know, back-in-the-habit kind of jokes going around. Um, but the thing, the immediate thought for me was, uh, yeah, yeah, I get that. That makes sense to me. And what I realised, what had happened in my mind was I'm used to seeing women who look like that visually long dresses, covering their hair, running around playing sport. This is not a new thing for me and I suddenly went hang on a minute why is this titillating or why is this interesting or fun or cute and I thought okay there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of kind of stereotypes at play here and again none of that's bad but I just found it interesting to see how we all found that fascinating Mm -hmm. um you know when I grew up we, my community used to organise sports days. A family friend of ours was a PE teacher out in Muralbark. He used to hire out the school gym. And the men, because we do a lot of men's business, women's business, um, the men would be outside playing something and the women would be inside the indoor basketball court playing sport, much like those nuns on the roof. Uh, and we'd be in our Muslim garb with, you know, some of the women were wearing hijabs. It was a safe space for women to play and be active. And when I talk to people in my community as women who cover and who like to be modest in their dressing, all they want is a place where there can be just women so they can play sport. And part of, if they are to play sport in public, it would be in loose clothing, covering their hair potentially. And so to me, I kind of went, oh, this is this is actually really normal. And maybe what's happened here is we're so used to images of elite women's sport or a type of woman who plays sport that we've forgotten that sport can look and feel completely different as well. And it can look like a casual game of soccer played by some nuns as much as it is Darcy Vessio and, you know, Sarah Perkins running around. And it also reminded me of a session I sat in recently for work by Getty Images, who put together a whole bunch of research around the images of women in sports media and what that tells us about what women enjoy and what they like. One of their findings was that women respond visually to other women who are of all body types engaging in sport. So they asked the question visually, what do women want to see in sport? And they said all body types engaging in sport, people of different ages engaging in sport, all genders engaging in sport and everyday people, people like me engaged in sport. And that made me realise as well, when I watched those nuns playing on the rooftop, (laughs) That more than anything I've seen lately made me want to get up and play some Mm. soccer. You know, I am not sporty. I'd much rather watch it on TV. So for a campaign to hit me like that (laughs) has to be really effective. And those nuns got me. They made me want to get up and play because, A, they looked like they were having so much fun, but they were also women that looked and felt more like me and something I could relate to. And I thought, oh, that's what I want to see more of. Mm. everyday women and different types of women playing. Yeah, it reminds me, Rana, of a campaign that I saw this week from Adidas 
a new campaign which is focused on women and they have released a new sports bra but it's in 43 different varieties to cater to diverse breast sizes and shapes and the best part of the campaign for me is that it was it was accompanied by an image that showcases the diversity of body shapes and sizes it's essentially just a photograph of many different women's breasts in a bid to normalize different body types and as a woman I found it really interesting to see it was it was it felt real as much as a campaign by a company that's designed to sell products can feel real but it still felt real and I I reacted to it because as you say uh, Rana things like the way that women think about who plays sport and our concern about only certain body sizes and shapes having a space within sporting environments is a major barrier to women being willing to participate in sport. So I enjoyed the campaign. It felt like something different to me and I want to see more of that, something that's just uh, celebrating people in all of their diversity and 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 beauty. And I feel like we get this a lot in AFLW. One of the things I love about AFLW is seeing so many different types of people playing the game, so the tall and the short and the younger younger and older and bigger and smaller and it's so to me a a showing of diverse women and people and so many different types of athletes and it does kind of inspire me like Rana to get off the couch and get playing and I also need a new bra so I like these things are all kind of crying out to me and telling me the universe is saying get off the couch but um that's partly in this conversation is partly why I was so furious And just I couldn't stop thinking about Sarah Perkins from the Gold Coast Suns being trolled on Twitter this week. And if you missed the story, Sarah had posted um, a pretty generous post, I think, as an athlete who had lost uh, with an insight into how she was feeling after that loss and asking Suns fans to stick with them and keep improving. And there were two just like classic trolls on the comments talking about her body and she called them out for it and so too did Collingwood skipper Steph Kiochi and and many other AFLW players massive show of support which I think they've done really well this season is really supporting each other and and publicly having each other's back but uh, there was also a couple of comments from the sex discrimination commissioner Kate Jenkins and the e-safety commissioner talking about what they are trying to do to help people like Sarah who and women who are getting trolled online and um, there was research this week actually about women Women and how online abuse is impacting their working lives. So one in three women that were surveyed had experienced online abuse in a work context and the, and the abuse was really different. It was obviously um, higher for women who were in a public role, public-facing role such as Sarah. Um, and many of the women had said they'd taken a backward step in their career because they were avoiding an online platform and avoiding certain situations because they didn't want to be abused. And I, for one, definitely can put my hand up and say I always think, oh, I'm not going to put anything on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook because I don't want people to be cruel um, to me because that's how my brain works is that the first thought is someone will troll me and I can't, I don't think I can handle that. And that has definitely held me back because the media... (laughs) the media is exceptionally active online and so many people are active online and I never want to get involved and a final note on the trolls themselves one looks to be a Western Bulldogs supporter so perhaps the club could step in and investigate whether he is a member because if he is a member there's definitely an action that could be taken about that person because we've seen clubs do that for other types of abusive players online Um, and the other one has deleted his response and his entire account so uh if he is going to be sniping from the sidelines about people's commitment, then obviously he didn't have a lot of commitment himself. Rana. And I also just want to acknowledge that we've talked about this in terms of women, but of course there is another conversation here for trans people and non-binary people. So I acknowledge that 
there's so much more we could be talking about here in this moment and that that is also a very complex conversation that we probably should have sometime soon. Yeah, Rana, absolutely. There's a huge conversation here and we are conscious that there is a bill uh, that is currently being debated in Parliament uh, that is causing a great deal of harm and concern in the community and so we're, we're looking into doing a fifth quarter just on that bill and an explainer about what is actually happening at the moment so that'll be coming to you soon. It's time for final business. I'll go first and just want to mention that it's bath time at the madhouse that I live in. So if there's any background noise, you can all enjoy that um, from afar. But we want to send our love to both Rewat from St Kilda and Britt Benici from Collingwood, both out with ACLs. Just devastating news and we can't wait to see them back playing footy. Gemma Bastiani, our stat guru, had said that Britt Benici had made her debut round one 2017 and has never missed a game. So that is just so sad that that has to come to an end for such a terrible reason um but back go for another run next when you come back let's go and try and do it all over again because we'd love to see that run continue rana any final beers yes just a heads up that friend of the pod kurt fernley's podcast little rippers is about to be back out this week ahead of the winter paralympics uh so look out for that wherever you do listen to your podcasts And look, finally, I just wanted to mention, obviously, we've talked about a lot of pretty distressing content this week, and I'm sure that many listeners like us are wondering what on earth we can do from where we are. So first of all, in relation to Ukraine, if you're wondering whether there's something you can do to support people affected, you can donate at ukrainecrisisappeal.org. And the other thing that you mentioned earlier, Tess, of course, is that a lot of our friends and listeners up in New South Wales and Queensland have been seriously affected by uh, almost unprecedented floods up there and there's just devastating scenes. So first of all, we want to send our love to all of our New South Wales and Queensland listeners, but also note that there are a lot of charities who are supporting people who've been affected by the floods up there. Uh, One charity that you can donate to is the New South Wales SES, which is staffed by volunteers, but just go online. There's lots of other options in GoFundMes and and so on for people who need help. Thank you both for your chat this week. Hanging out with you two has made me feel a bit better about it and has been, as I mentioned, a great distraction from everything else and also bath and bedtime. So it has been wonderful. Go Tigers this weekend. Go all AFLW teams. It strikes me that we are getting towards the end of the season and that always makes me feel a bit sad and uncomfortable because I know that it's coming to an end and we don't get AFLW for you know several months. So make the most of it. Get to the footy if you can do it safely and enjoy these wonderful athletes doing their thing. There's only one thing left to say and that is go, go footy. footy. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.